one of my dearest friends, his name's Buddha. And uh, Buddha is an incredible fellow. He had this huge uh, empire. He was the prince and he had everything. He had the girls, he had the money, he had the jewels, he had everything, right? Then one day he started walking around and he goes, holy shit, what's all this suffering? Who really am I? What's going on, right? So he gave up everything, right? Then for six years straight, he almost starved to death. I mean, nobody got his, into this as, as Buddha. You know, he went to all the teachers, he learned all this stuff, and then he joined a group of sadhus, and he just about starved. Really came close to just starved. And then one day he goes, I just wasted my time. This is this is not it. And he was so so blown out um, that he said, "Okay, forget it. I'm finished. No, no more. Gate, gate. I'm gone." And so he found this tree called the Bodhi tree. The Buddha said, "Okay, forget it. You know." So he sat on the ground, put his hands on the earth, and said, "Forget it. I'm out. I'm out. Finished. No more." Six days later. The continuity broke. He finally quit. No more meditation, no more fasting, no more nothing. Right? It's like, okay, I'm gone. Six days later, broke the continuity, popped right out of the matrix. And then he said, why didn't I see it? It was right in front of me all the time. This was ridiculous, right? So for the next 40 years, he goes yakking about emptiness. Same thing happened to Lot Tzu, right? He goes yakking about the Tao. Same thing happened to Christ. He goes yakking about the kingdom of heaven. But none of these guys are explaining it. They're putting some sort of spirit. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't. I'm saying the people that took over their teaching, they're just making a mess of it because they're not true teaching, right? True teaching cuts through fast. It's like a sharp sword. Hmm. All this other stuff is just adding more nonsense, more you know, spiritual nonsense and spiritual materialistic nonsense to a, a mind that's already totally overamped. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrop. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome to the show, Swami John. Thank you so much, Luke. Yeah, nice very, to be here. very happy to have you. We had a chance to meet in some beautiful redwoods in Northern California at a festival uh, that was centered around um, Osho's teachings and Tantra not so long ago and just thrilled to have you on the show and good to see you again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great to be here. Great. Well, you know, this show, Crazy Wisdom, you know, our community is all about sharing stories and talking about these ex- intense, unorthodox, unusual experiences we find ourselves in on a quest to live a life of deeper purpose and deeper truth. And knowing a bit about your story, it seems like you've had a few of those experiences over the years. Um, So we'd love to hear a bit about that. But first, you know, uh, you actually spent some time with the man, the teacher that really coined the phrase crazy wisdom. And I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of an a definition even, or a a description of what is crazy wisdom? 
Right. I spent time with a few crazy wisdom teachers. One of them was a gentleman named Shogun Trumpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan Rinpoche. And uh, he was born in Tibet. And uh, he left Tibet with 20,000 followers. Out of that, 285 got to India. And he was the only one that made it to the West. And uh, I'll tell you one crazy wisdom story. I might tell you a few. But uh, we were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, 40 below zero, at a crazy wisdom Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche seminar. Aram Das, Bhagavan Das, a whole cast of characters were there. Ram Das and Bhagavan Das were walking by, and Trumpa said, you know, you guys are really full of shit. You're wearing these fancy robes. You think you're like some sort of gurus. And it's all BS. So go back to your rooms, put on a pair of Levi's, and come back and have a drink. Well, they did it. And uh, Ram Das went back, and Bhagavan Das, he was a tall guy and be here now. So they went back to their rooms, came back with Levi's on and a Hawaiian shirt. Bhagavan Das drank a little bit too much. So he kind of passed out a little bit. And Trupa told one of his students to cut his hair off. He hadn't cut his hair in 14 years. He took it better than I would. He only cut off six, six inches. But this is an example of crazy wisdom. Shogun Trumpa Rinpoche was, uh, when he was two years old, he was discovered as a reincarnated toko, which is a reincarnated lama. And he remembers uh, going, oh, no, I'm not going to do this again. He didn't really want to do it. But he was, uh, you know, he's the 14th reincarnation of the Kagyupa lineage. So he was kind of destined to do it. So he did everything he could to try to break free of the spiritual and materialistic stuff. And he wrote a great book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And uh, he was one example. Another example was Osho. I spent seven years in Pune, India, with Osho as his bodyguard, one of his bodyguards. There was Shiva, Sattva, and myself, first three samurai guards. Osho's vision was to get 50,000 people together and be able to create an energy field that would actually be strong enough so if you just were in the field, that it was going to pop you into an awakened state. And so he created a lot of different ways to figure out how to create that energy. He created a dynamic meditation thing that was uh, really physical. And he'd always come up with different ideas and he'd experiment on us, the guards, to see if they would work. Mm -hmm. I remember once he put this incredibly powerful strobe light where you stare into it for 15 minutes and then shut your eyes. And it kind of like blasts your third eye. And he was just experimenting. His whole mm -hmm. thing was an experiment. 1974, Osho told me that the whole thing's an experiment. In the end, it kind of, he didn't actually fulfill his, his mission or his vision. And uh, when we moved from uh, Pune to Antelope, Oregon, we bought 64,000 acres of land there. Things kind of went sideways. Osho was really into combining science, the arts, all sorts of different, I guess you'd say, methods to create a, an awakened being. One of the things we've just really gotten into lately is we're able to, let me give you a little example. 
Do you know a gentleman named uh, Rumi, a poet? <laughs> of course. He's an old okay. friend of mine. Rumi has a one-liner. He says, beyond right doing and beyond wrong doing, there's a field, and I'll meet you there. The Buddha has this thing called the Buddha field, mm -hmm. and the Taoists have this thing called the Tao. Christ has got this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Well, we've identified the actual frequency field that all these masters are pointing to. It's a fifth dimensional field that can be coaxed into a third dimension. And in order to access that, you have to go up to a certain height. It basically is in a certain field of frequency. And until you can get to that field of frequency, it's very difficult to enter into that field. That's called awakening or enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So all the masters basically went through the same passageway. And it was a passageway from self to no self. So they were able to get quiet enough. And what it is, it's actually, it's a reduction of data. The whole spiritual materialistic, the whole spiritual trip is basically two things. One, it's a slow withering away of the entire willpower because it's a willpower that powers this thing called me, called self. And that's been programmed for generations upon generations. The other one is the amount of data in the mind. I'll give you a really simple example. You look at it like a computer. All right. So if you look at the computer, the human operating disk is just full. So we are so full, there's no room. And the, let's just say dark forces for right now, have a program that's adding more and more data to the human mind on purpose. By adding more and more data, they can keep the humans in a matrix. It's called the internal thought realm matrix. And in that matrix, that's what Buddha called suffering. And so the trick is to break free of this matrix and actually resolve the question of birth and death in this one lifetime. All right, so it seems like there's a little bit of a battle going on now between the ones who are awakening and the ones who are kind of hell-bent to keep the uh, status quo agenda going. So what we're doing, we have a group of mystic alchemists involved to be able to create new paradigm ways to speed up the matrix, to speed up the awakened matrix. And so if you look at like what Rumi did, what all the masters did, they created an energy field by reducing data. So on their human operating disk, they created space. And it's like the ever-awakened download is always present. God's always here. Buddha's always here. They're all here, hmm. right? But we're not here. We're in some sort of future. We're in some sort of past. We're in some sort of worry. We're in some sort of anxiety. Minds are speeding up. I hear it's doubling every 79 days now. This is getting really critical because there's a certain point that the mind's going to go manic. And so what I'm trying to do is get really simple ways to a lot of people to avoid that condition. So in the process of awakening, if you can reduce down enough data, you can create enough space in between the thoughts, in between make the space wider and wider, and then depends on your karma, 
when you hit a certain point, the download will just simply download. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. In fact, the more you do, sometimes the more trouble you're going to cause. So Osho was a good example of that because uh, he would be able to create an energy field. I remember watching him every day. He'd be talking and, you know, there'd be hundreds of people sitting in front of him and he'd just be scanning and he'd scan from left to right. And when he saw somebody that was open, he would just pour this energy into him. So he could tell how much space people had in between their thoughts. And when he found somebody that was really empty, he would just pour it in. And it was like really quite incredible to see that his whole thing was based upon energy and frequency. Hmm. And what would that look like? So somebody, you were watching that as, as part of his security detail, you'd see him kind of scan and see somebody oh, yeah, that yeah. was really um, had the capacity to kind of go deeper. What would that, what were you seeing? Well, I was seeing exactly what was happening. Mm-hmm. He was basically, he would start at one end of the room and he would just go around the room. And then he'd see somebody, and you could just feel mm-hmm. he would just go right into that person and fill it with energy. Actually, it would be an energy that would reduce data. Mm-hmm. It was a frequency field. During the energy darshans at night, he also spent 21 hours a day in his room. Mm-hmm. That was great. That was the best job I ever had. All I had to do was be quiet and sit there. But 21 hours he'd spend in his room, he'd come out for an hour and a half in the morning and give a talk. Hour and a half at night, he'd do an energy darshan. And in the energy darshan, there might be like two, three, four hundred people. And we had these band going. We had Congo drums. We had the whole thing going. And he had a, a group of nine women that were just incredibly energetic. And then he had the samurai guards. And then he had one person sitting right in front of him, right, like two or three feet in front of him. And he'd just be absorbing all of this energy from everything around. And then he'd just go, bam, and put his fingers right in their head, right in the third eye. Hmm. And what he was doing, he was activating the 5-MEO in the pineal gland. And so all these masters, what they really are, are scalar energy source generators. Hmm. And all these people that go to see their guru, and then, uh, you know, they leave and they go, oh, I'm all messed up again. I got to go see my guru again, right? <laughs> yes. They go yeah, back but- and need, needing the next kind of experience or the next uh, fix on this. You know, I think this is really interesting. You know, we've seen just over the last 10 years, a real decline in the culture around gurus and collectively, I think, in the, at least in the Western culture. And it was a different time back in the 60s and 70s when you when you started to follow these teachers. I'm just curious if you can paint a little picture about both your personal picture of why you were seeking mm. teachers like this, but also maybe paint a picture for those of us that weren't there, like what was happening in the culture in the world that led to this, this idea of, of finding spiritual teachers and following them in the way that you did. Exactly. All right, I'll give you a little example. In uh, 1967, I was at the uh, University of uh, Michigan. I was in my junior year, and um, Philip Keplow, a Zen teacher from Rochester, New York, 
He wrote a book called The Three Pillars of Zen, which is a brilliant book. Mm -hmm. Philip came and he gave a talk. And uh, we did uh, two 20-minute meditations. At the time, I had a leather vest on. And there's two types of Zen. One is called Soto Zen, and the other one's called Rinzai. Rinzai is more like samurai emperors. It's a little different than the Soto. Soto is kind of like the normal Zen. Hmm. Well, he was a Soto master. and uh, But you would put your hands up over your head when you were thinking too much. You know, you'd gasho up high, hmm. and they'd come by with a big stick, and they'd just whack you on the shoulder, and the energy would just put you straight right away, and also uh, reduce thought really fast. There was a girl that got uh, hit right next to my right ear, and it actually broke the continuity of thought in my brain for, for a moment, and I got a glimpse. And this is just with the first 20 minutes sitting with this guy, right? Right away, I said, okay, that's it. I'm uh, out of this educational system. I brought four other people with me from the university to go to Rochester, New York. And I spent three years sitting with Philip. And it was an incredible beginning. It was a great beginning. Great mm -hmm. foundation. Zen's an incredibly great foundation. And then uh, I asked him one day about sex. And he said, here we go above it. And uh, I couldn't quite, couldn't quite go for that at the moment. Hmm. And uh, so I went to Shogun Trumpa Rinpoche after that, who was a tantric teacher. And did, uh, not, have, did not have that issue in, in, in uh, Trumpa's community, as I understand. <laughs> oh, no, no. Trumpa was just, he was just, he was like a tantric master. Uh, but he was also a bit of an alcoholic. We used to mm -hmm. drink a lot. We drink sake. We drink a half a bottle or so, and he'd say, "Where are you?" And I'd say, "Well, I'm really feeling it." And he'd just laugh. And then he'd say, uh, "Well, let's have some more." So we drink a bottle, and he'd look at me again. He said, "Now where are you?" I said, "Now I'm getting, I'm getting really high." And he just laughed. So we drank another half bottle. And then he just really stared at me and said, where are you? And I got it. He was not self-referencing back to anything called sober. And he was watching me continually self-reference back, self, self back to this thing called a me to come up with an answer of where I was, right? Hmm. This is the way he used to teach. I mean, he used to do this to me all the time. And just like, it was quite brilliant way of teaching. And so what we're doing, all humans are doing all day long, is they're self-referencing using a self-referencing mechanism in the mind, which is actually creating this thing called me to begin with, right? If you just watch your mind, you'll see that it's a program, and it's programmed to survive. And it survives by feeding off thoughts. So the mind is constantly scanning the continuum of thought, looking for food, right? So anything that, you, if you want to speed up the matrix, you got to come up with new paradigm ways to actually break the continuity of thought. Because it's that continuity that creates this thing called me to begin with, right? And it's a willpower that powers it. Hmm. So when you really get it, that what you're doing is you're constantly being born and you're constantly dying. That's kind of the secret of uh, 
death and dying. Mm-hmm. Every time your mind is moving, you are. When the mind's not moving, you're not. Mm-hmm. Right? In deep, deep sleep, right? You're not. Right? But this constant movement from being and not being, you think it's kind of like a continuity. It's like you're watching this movie and it has a certain speed on the frames. And you think that that's reality. But if you slow the frames down and you get to the point where you're able to like go from each individual frame to the next frame, that's like moving from moment to moment with no residue. Okay, that's the awakened state. It's kind of like your head is like a camera. And you just go click, click, and there's no continuity. So it's this continuity back to a reference called a reference point called the me or called the you, which creates this bloody thing called self to begin with. So when you get really right down to it, you see that it's just this program. And the more you can watch your mind and kind of ponder, who am I prior? to thinking who are you prior to thinking right and fully understand the most important thing to understand is there's no way you're going to understand with the mind right so to seek no mind to seek awakening with the mind that's the number one mistake so anything that comes from the mind when it comes to truth is actually a lie so there's just certain kind of Things that I've learned over the years that can wipe out Hmm. all sorts of years or lifetimes of trouble. Yeah. And back in the 60s, we were just like, I used to hang out with Ram Dass and uh, Timothy Leary. And uh, we would take a little bit too much acid, but we, I did 900 hits, Hmm. you know, over my course of that period. And uh, we would be normal. We would just be normal. And uh, anybody that would come up to the table or something, they would start going, whoa, what's going on? I remember once we walked into a church and the minister got within 20 feet. You know, he's going to come up and welcome us and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he got 20 feet and he just stopped and started walking backwards. (laughs) Uh, But that's what was happening during the 60s. Um, Especially, it was just like this time of... uh, Total experimental and awakening, and it was quite innocent in a lot of ways. And uh, I'm just so happy that I was able. Osho said that if you were born between 1967 and 1973, that you were accelerated in consciousness just by being on the planet. Hmm. If you were alive during that period. And that's when he came back. Osho spent 700 years. He he'd said one day that there was a. Uh, He went on a 21-day fast, and after 18 days, he realized that he was not going to be able to come back. So he had one of us murder him on purpose. (laughs) And uh, I think he did it again, his last kind of exit. (laughs) Uh, Because there's a certain level of consciousness, a certain frequency where you can't come back. And uh, for a lot of people, that's a gift. It's really like, I really don't have that much of a desire to come back in this world of form. 
But Osho has got a lot of compassion. And his compassion for helping people was great enough that he would sacrifice his life to be able to come back again and teach. Yeah. So he waited 700 years until we were ready to understand what the hell he was talking about. Right? Because 700 years ago, if he started talking about no mind, there'd be a few, especially Americans, that would quite understand what you're talking about. But anyways, we went through uh, so many different uh, kind of stages during the 60s. Um, Shogun Trungpa Rinpoche, I was with uh, Dujum Rinpoche. Dujum spent 12 years looking at a rock, and he mm -hmm. ate nettle tea. Um, yeah, Dujum Rinpoche, Kalu Rinpoche, Gatro Rinpoche, Shogun Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, I spent time with each one of those guys, and uh, Osho, Osho was the most fun. Yeah, how so? I'm, I'm curious. You, you talked a bit about the dynamic meditation. I mean, he, he spun out just a massive amount of different technologies and ways to kind of get at no mind and mm -hmm. uh, non-ordinary states that'll pop us out of our kind of habitual thought patterns and worked so much with the body. And I'm just, I, I can imagine that must have been just a wild, fun ride. I'm curious why, you know, what was it about him that made him and his teachings so unique and special? Well, to me, it was his grasp of no mind. I mean, I, I just finished a three-year, three-month, three-day retreat, silent retreat, to be a Lama just before I met him. And that's after six years of Zen Center, seven years of Tibetan. So um, when I got there, I walked in his room at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was escorted in there by a lady called Lakshmi, who was the first secretary. Lakshmi and I got on great. We just really had fun. A uh, little bitty girl, and she's just like a powerhouse. Mm -hmm. So I, I walked in there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we just started laughing. And Osho said, what took you so long? And then I started laughing. And he said, okay, okay. What do you want to do now? Mm. And I just finished this three-year, I said nothing. And he thought that was great. And he said, well, what can you do? And I said, I can sit. He says, okay, very good. Okay, so you're my guard. So seven years I sat there, and uh, it was not necessarily because of the teaching, because I had so many before. It was the frequency field. Hmm. Yeah. So when you're sitting near somebody like that, and they're putting off this certain scalar energy, source energy field, it depresses your thinking. And that's why people get really high, and that's why they come back, because they don't realize that it's this energy phenomenon. Mm. But um, I think what we got to do now is we're going to have to come up with these new paradigm ways to be able to uh, change this matrix uh, quite fast. What we're doing right now is we're developing a community plan that can be rapidly developed. Mm -hmm. I just became the representative for 25,000 tiny homes, uh, which are all built, fully insulated, wired, and plumb. So uh, I'm just putting together an international program uh, that we can do rapid development communities. I mean, like three months, start to finish, mm -hmm. the entire community. 
That's for the housing, that's for the clinics, that's for the greenhouses, the whole, the whole thing. Uh, we built two of the largest hospitals in the world in Wuhan, China, when the COVID came out. Built 650,000 square feet in 10 days. Hmm. Had thousands of Chinese helpers. It's on the internet. It's pretty famous. Mm-hmm. But uh, they used our units to build that. So that's something that I'm kind of got a passion for right now. And uh, our company's called One World Housing. And I'm seeing that we got about six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Based on all the indicators, both in the United States and uh, in Europe, um, this thing's coming down quite fast. And that we, we should really get prepared quite quickly to be able to uh, get yourself sustainable, especially in two, two aspects. One is food and the other one is housing. So I'm focused on both of those right now. Uh, our, our basic 20 foot by eight and a half foot tiny home, again, fully insulated, wired and plumbed, but we can convert them into uh, aquaponic and hydroponic, very high yield greenhouses. Mm-hmm. So we're putting a program together where we can build the community, but we can also feed the community and we can do it in record time. One greenhouse will be able to, we can do about 150,000 pounds of food in one 20-foot uh, tiny home. And that's using very advanced aquaponic and hydroponic technology. And we also have developed the uh, plasma and scalar energy generators that can uh, 30% more growth and 30% more nutritional value. So I'm, I'm having a great time trying to figure out the most advanced technology in the simplest applications and the most rapid deployment possible. This vision you're describing for a community, it's so, it's so beautiful. I, I get curious, you know, how much of this have you borrowed from your time with Osho and the community C created and, and how much of it is different? Like what's the same and what's different? Good question. Yeah. Uh, Osho, when Osho left the body, he only said four words. Leave you my dream. That was it. His dream is my dream. I had this before I met Osho. He just reinforced it. Now I don't have any choice much. I just think that this, I can't think of anything else to do. It has five pillars. The five pillars are feeding, healing, housing, energy, and awakening. You know, I just really appreciate the the focus on silence, right? And this is, you know, often the path, as you say, like the path to no mind is to just let everything else fall out and be in silence. You, you mentioned, you know, like deep nature is, is a place where that happens that also gets us to a place of no mind. What I know about some of the Osho practices is they're anything but silent, right? His dynamic meditation is like a cathartic, ecstatic rounds of, of, anger and fear and the even his chakra meditation it's like we're we're constantly moving energy it's very it's anything but silence and stillness and can you help us understand the the thread between these like cathartic states with place of deep stillness well osho his dream was everybody being quiet and all this dynamic meditation was just basically a way to blow out all the bullshit as fast as possible to get to silence, right? 
I mean, he himself, I mean, look at what he did. He sat in his room for 21 hours a day, man. He was just silent all day, right? I mean, he'd come out and go blah, blah, blah for an hour and a half. He was a great talker. And then uh, no mind. He'd just go in and sit in his room. He read four books a day. He wrote 700 books. 700 books have been published with his name. And he's read 150,000. Now, there was this hallway that was all made out of marble. And it was 100 feet long and it had like 45,000 books in it. And he had to walk through that to get to his room in the ashram. <laughs> so, I mean, the dude had a mind that was like mind-boggling. He had a photographic memory. He was just like amazing. But he could also go in his room and just go, boom, gone. Hmm. So what he was doing with this dynamic was just getting people, you know, blowing it out. He didn't finish his mission, right? He got sidetracked. And then what was left was the dynamic meditation. And he never really, he never got to the point where he just said, look, just be quiet. I mean, that's what he did himself. The last three years, he just kind of, he got so far in the background that Sheila took over. And Sheila didn't want any of us guys that were really close to him to get close to him because she was controlling him. Uh, an example of that, she bought the ashram for $5 million, sold to the, uh, Ashram for 6.5, put a million five in her pocket. That's why she bought the place. I mean, it was a cattle ranch. It was fit for cattle. It was just clay. It was like, they called it the big muddy ranch. I mean, if you walk on it, you grow by two or three inches because of the clay in your boots, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, they, they got it. They were, we, we were making $100 million a year. You allude to this, you know, there was like most spiritual communities, especially of that era, there were there were some challenges, there were some characters, there's like, you know, we think about the legacy of Trumpa, we think about the legacy of Osho and mm -hmm. the world has changed. And I think a lot of these communities and, and we're, we're kind of like trying to make sense of some of these teachers and, and some of the, I think about even Yogi Bhajan and, and mm -hmm. all of the, what's come out about him and his, the way that he harmed some yeah. people close to him, including some very important women. And I just, I'm just curious for you, like the way I've been able to make sense of this is like separating the teachings from the teacher, right? There's this, there's the, the karma that was generated through the amazing teachings, but then there's also in all these cases, there's this karma that's been generated around, that's been a vehicle of harm. Mm -hmm. And here we are in 2022, we've been, you know, kind of through me too, the me too movement and a lot of other things have changed. I'm just curious, like, how do you make sense of the shadier parts of the legacy of Osho or Trump. Well, Osho had a vision, right? And he had access to the field of no mind. That's enough for me. You know, I, I, I feel sorry that he didn't fulfill his mission. Um, I think he made some radical mistakes. You know, spiritually, you might say nothing's a mistake, but um, I've just simplified the hell out of it. I'm just saying, look, at, just get rid of all the spiritual materialistic bullshit. Get rid of, you know, anything that has to do with like, you know, debt slave type mentality. Really realize that what it is that is blocking the light. I mean, God's always shining. Buddha's always here. What's blocking the light? I mean, bottom line, it's this constant thinking. And so all meditation is, all yoga is basically reducing data. So if you can reduce data, you know, our birthright 
is to be able to move moment to moment with no residue. Hmm. Now, that's a real powerful statement. It sounds really simple. But when you're moving moment to moment with no residue, you really don't know. You really don't know. You're in a state of not knowing, right? And so when this actually occurs, what happens is the mind that was acting as an interloper to all the passing, if you look at thoughts just floating by, they're really quite innocent, right? They're just thoughts, right? And like an Einstein would be picking up a certain field of thoughts and, you know, a, another person would be picking up a different field, but they're coming from the same field. So the mind is a program, this program to grab the thought and then follow it. So all day long, and the five senses are your feeler. They're like your antenna. And these five senses are constantly interfacing with your environment. And the mind, the unawakened mind, is acting like it's on the top of a pyramid. And these thoughts are floating by, and the mind grabs the thought and then follows it. Now, at the base of this pyramid are the sense, five senses, right? So with awakening, what happens is the mind stops being an interloper. It stops being the director. It stops being the organizer. It stops being the boss, right? And it then falls back naturally in line with the other senses. So now it's a sixth sense. So when there's an actual demand from the outside, because in this point, at this point, there's no inside. There's no me, right? So there's no demand. So most of these awakened people could just sit and look at the fan for a couple hours and wouldn't be any big deal, right? So that's why Osho could sit in his room for 21 hours because there wasn't that big of a movement, right? There was no demand. When he'd go out and see all these people, there was a demand. So, of course, the mind would come forward. Uh, in this state of consciousness, in this awakened state of consciousness, the mind then is just resting in its natural home in line with the other senses. So when there's a demand like, how do I get to the airport? Okay, mind like lightning will come forward. And it'll bring one or two of the other senses with it to take care of the outside demand. Once that demand's met, it'll nat naturally and spontaneously return to its natural state, right? This is all no thinking involved. To actually get to this condition, you have to understand what it is that's actually creating the unenlightened state to begin with, which is constantly self-referencing back to this thing called the me, right? And so what I try to do is I try to explain it from, uh, from just common sense. Right. And so you don't think that the mind, the mind's an incredible tool. I mean, it's really wonderful. You can build computers, you can do crazy things, you can just really, it's brilliant, but not for awakening. It's got a great limitation. Right. So anything that comes from the mind when it comes to truth, first of all, is a lie. So you don't pay much attention to that. Right. And then just watch your own mind. Don't believe what I say, don't believe what you're reading books. Just watch your own mind and you'll see the way it functions. And so what it's doing is it's activating the memory cells 24-7, right? You're constantly, like you got the girlfriend file, you got the car file, you got the meditation file, you got the work file. All these files are open, right? And that takes an enormous energy. And that's the energy that's critically uh, important to awaken. 
So in a lot of ways, all this spiritual and religious stuff is nothing but energy phenomenon. It really doesn't have anything to do with spiritual and religious teaching. And that's where the religious you know, priests and teachers can fool everybody. Uh, so I just try to cut through all that shit and say, look, what is it stopping you from being awakened right now? Hmm. And then you just see it. Okay, it's stress, it's anxiety, it's excess thinking. Okay, so how do we get rid of these impediments, right? Well, real simple, five pillars, right? Just, you know, make it so nobody has to stress out for any of that mm. stuff. And then have a, an environment that is very conducive to awakening. If you're in a beautiful environment that's frequency enhanced, and you don't have any worry whatsoever about your, your livelihood, right? You can relax and nothing's going to happen. Nobody's going to get uh, awakened unless they relax. Mm-hmm. You know? It just yeah. doesn't happen being stressed out. Yeah. And right now, this stress factor is becoming critically important to so many people because they don't know what's going on. I mean, they don't even, they think that these thoughts are actually their thoughts. Mm-hmm. They think these feelings are their thoughts. They have nothing to do with them. And they're being manipulated. I mean, there is so much going on. It's the yeah. crazy stuff. But just yeah. in general, people that think these thoughts are theirs and these feelings are theirs um, haven't really got a grasp on who they really are. Hmm. I mean, they're just floating by. They're all passing phenomenon, right? Yeah. What you're describing is the state of mind and being that you know we learn about in the concept of Shambhala, Shangri-La, right? Where everyone's fed, housed, safe, secure, stress is low. And from that place, then we can, we can understand enlightened mind, right? The enlightened culture. This is Shangri-La. Exactly. And what, what is stopping us from doing that? I mean, that's plenty of common sense. It doesn't have anything to do with great spiritual teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bottom line is to really understand um, how this mind works. And it's a very powerful program. We're not, this is not a happy, healthy course here. This is not a happy, healthy deal. This is basically <laughs> a self, uh, it's a self-destruction course, mm. right? There's nothing here that you're not going to get anything. In fact, you're going to lose right everything. On. Right on. And all these guys that are selling all these self-improvement classes, they're just adding more momentum. Mm. Now you think it's holy and then you'll get, oh, I'm not going to go out and get me a Rolls Royce. I'm not going to get me a big car. Now I'm going to go out and get me God. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, the ego, the self, it'll say, fine, just keep going, man. Chase mm. something. Right. So yeah. what they're doing is just placing one illusion with another illusion. Right. And they think they're going to get something out of it. Right. At some point you got to stop. You got to cease. Right. True teaching cut through fast. It's like a sharp sword. Mm. All this mm. other stuff is just adding more nonsense, more, you know, spiritual nonsense and spiritual materialistic nonsense to a, a mind that's already totally overamped. I'm imagining you as a younger man in this place of a seeker and like finding these these magnificent teachers that just have such a field, the field that you describe that just like liberates people in their presence and can find a way to just really help people drop in and, and understand no mind. And then at some point, something in you shifted where you were holding yeah. other others. You were you were teaching. You were transmitting. You were. Uh, I'm wondering what that was for you. I think you know it's just something I look at in my own life around like 
I'm 44 and I feel the, you know, I feel the kind of top of the ridge here in a certain way. And, and there's just this massive drive to, to share knowledge and wisdom and experience, give people experiences to pull them out of their own suffering. And I'm just curious about that, that, that arc for you of like, when you felt what happened for you when you felt like, all right, it's, you know, I'm going to start giving, giving some of this. Well, you know, when I first started, uh, it was just a natural attraction. It was like, it was the only thing that made any sense. I mean, I just picked it up really fast. And then I spent, I would say 40 years until I got to the point where I met a couple truly enlightened guys that just slammed me to the mat. They just said, it's all bullshit. You're just wasting your time. And uh, I got interested. Why would they say something like that, right? And a couple of these guys, they were truly awakened. And they had figured out how to cut through all the different time factors of going through lifetimes. And I was really interested. So I started um, accelerating at that point. And then the idea of like, okay, what are you going to do with your life, right? And so I thought, okay, um, let's do an experiment. And the experiment is setting up communities that rapidly can be deployed, but also can rapidly bring people to an awakened state. And that just, you know, really rang a bell that, Mm -hmm. you know, what else is more important, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've had the money, I've had the big houses, I've had the cars, I've been like up and down like a bloody yoga. I was a millionaire three times, had the largest dive boat in the world in Fiji, had the biggest gold mine in Oregon, uh, made had 15 houses in Ashland, Oregon, Victorians. And, you know, 45 years, I kind of retired from business and you know, then I came back and I couldn't even get back in the market and I sold all the houses. So. The other thing that's really important is making sure that people can have a job. And if they want to work, you pay them. So by having the Bioponics Institute there, we can take these kids uh, who may be spiritually inclined, but also give them an incredible job opportunity that they can go anywhere in the world and be making $75,000 a year working for a day and something they really love. So when you throw in the five pillars, but you also throw in the jobs training program. And then you make it so that, I mean, I'm taking at least 20, 25% of all the income that comes in that's going to be split evenly to everybody in the community. So there's nobody in the community that doesn't have like $1,500 a month. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you want to donate it, you want to do whatever you want to do, right? But the idea is to make somebody feel like a millionaire so they can just stop that worrying. You know, a lot of people, this financial thing, um, it blows out everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it when what's coming is going to be really radically fast, and it's going to be coming with six to nine months. And uh, you got to look at what are going to be the priorities: housing, affordable housing, and food. Mm-hmm. Those are two of the big ones. So that's what I'm focused on. I have the whole five pillars, but financially working with investors and people who want to come in, I'm just working on 
on those two pillars. And today I just created a, like we got, I'm going to business here just for a second. We got, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we want to hear about this. We want to, you know, let people know where, where they can find out more. I'm curious where in the world these communities are popping up and yeah, give us a little bit of the. So right know. now we have 25,000 all built, fully insulated wired and plumb homes that can be shipped in 72 hours. We have plants in uh, Vietnam, South Korea, and China. China produces 54 of the world, 54% of the world's steel. It's the most steel production and these homes are 100% eco-friendly steel, incredibly strong. They can be built and set up in five hours. They're flat packed, so we can put eight homes in one con- container shipping them. And you got a really nice, fully insulated, wired, and plumbed, really well-built tiny home for 12000 bucks. I mean, they're selling these things for 50000 and up. It's ridiculous. And then at that point, where do you want to go? I mean... If you were to go, if you look at, there's 15,000 RV parks in America alone, 15,000, right? They got the zoning, they got the permitting, the commercial, they got the residential, they got the pads, they got the water, the electricity, it's all done, right? Just buy one, bring in these homes, we can build any shape, any size you want, boom, you got a community. You do the whole thing in 90 days, start to finish, right? The whole trip about building communities is zoning. America is set up to not have affordable communities. They don't have any kind of uh, system set up besides what's set up, which is a total waste, a total destruction to the environment. It's just total nonsense, right? Wood construction with sheetrock and insulation and all that crap. My brother, who's a famous architect, he's building at $367 a square foot. Hmm. I can build at 30. Right on. It's crazy, right? Great. So if, if people want to know more about this project, if they'd like to get involved, um, how do they get in touch with you or someone from, you know, this project? You can go to my website, which is www.nadwellnesscenter.com. Great. And we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can find that easily. And um, yeah, just, I want to thank you, you know, just, first of all, for your storytelling and, mm-hmm. you know, letting us get a glimpse into, you know, uh, an era that was certainly impactful for many of us with, you know, these, these incredible teachers coming from the East into the West and to hear your stories about that. It's meaningful for us, but also just want to thank you for your, you know, sharing your big heart and your care for the moment we're in now. And, um, this project that you're working on. So thank you so much for joining us. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. And maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy.